This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. So good to see all of you. We met last week and we're kind of gearing up. And so uh, I want to just hit right off the bat. I want to go right into the, to the Word. I'm going to read it and then we'll pray and then we'll see what Luke has for us as he penned this book many, many years ago. This is Jesus taken up into heaven. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles. He had chosen... After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will see power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him. From their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk. From the city, which is about three quarters of a mile. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Let's pray. Father, I am humbled, humbled beyond belief that you have entrusted in us, in me, the mission of spreading the good news. Lord, you know each person's heart this morning. You promise that you will meet all our needs. Lord, you are sovereign over all. You hear and see every heartache, every sigh, and every victory. You are God, and you are the great I am. Lord, I confess in the complexity of life here in this season, I do not acknowledge answered prayer often enough because I'm such a needy person. You answer a prayer, and I don't take the time to stop and acknowledge and praise your name before I speak to you about another need. Sometimes I have to fight to see the direction in which you are guiding me. Sometimes I experience more closed doors than open ones. Your power, Lord, that you have given to us through the Holy Spirit is so unexplainable. 
It is astounding. It is risky. It is scary. It is powerful. As I leaned back into my chair earlier this week in preparation for this time with my sisters in Christ and thought about a verse that ministered to me in the past and ministered to me today, and this one came to mind. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mine in Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer for us, dear sisters. That same prayer Paul prayed for Timothy and the fellow believers in the Philippians as we begin digging into Acts this year. I pray that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you and I may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Wow. This first part of Acts has tons. And to limit it and uh, to even pick and choose uh, what God was leading me to was difficult. So excited uh, to share with you this morning some of the things in which he shared with me and, and uh, pointed out and laid on my heart. The author of Acts is Luke. He wrote the book of Luke as well as um, Acts. And the prideful, stubborn person that I am, I go, well, why is it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why isn't it Mark, Mark, John, and then Luke, then Acts? Why is it out of sync? Okay, Lord, I've got that out. Now we're going to go from here. He was a Syrian doctor and, who converted to Christianity when the first missionaries left Jerusalem and Caesarea communities to take the gospel beyond the borders of the Jewish country. He arrived in Rome, the capital of the then known world. Rome, the capital, not one of the capitals, the capital of the known world where he stayed for at least two years. There he met Peter and Mark, who were preaching among the Christians in Rome. When he wrote his gospel, he was availed various texts that were kept in some of the churches there, or the synagogues, and he also had firsthand stories from the first disciples. Acts is the second volume of a two-volume history history, and we'll talk about that, I'll talk about that a little bit, history, written by the companion of the Apostle Paul. Let's pause a minute on that statement. Luke, a companion of Paul. Who are your companions in your life journey? What is their influence on you? What draws them to you? What draws you to them? If someone outside of your circle, and as Michelle talked about, outside of your tribe, and they would be asked to describe the makeup of your circle, what would they say? In Luke 1, 1 through 4, Luke mentions Theophilus. Who was Theophilus? The fact is we really don't know There are several different theories as to who he might be. His name literally means love by God. 
but carries the idea of friend of God, which piqued my interest a bit. I would love to know someone that that was the meaning of their name. So here's a few theories that they threw out. Some believe that he's, it was just a generic title that applies to all Christians. Hmm, a little weak. Some believe he was an actual person, and Luke addresses him as most excellent, often used in referring to someone of honor, of rank, as a Roman official. Some believe he was a wealthy and influential man in the city of Antioch. He could have been a wealthy benefactor for Paul and Timothy on their missionary trips. And so it would be important for Luke to come, da- come back and report with accuracy to his benefactor. Some believe that he could have even been a Jewish high priest. Some believe he even could have been a Roman lawyer that defended Paul during his trial in Rome. While each of these theories hold possibilities, it seems most likely that he was a high-ranking or influential Gentile from whom Luke wanted to provide a detailed historical account of Christ and the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Who Theophilus was does not really matter, but what Luke wanted to convey to him and to us is of the most importance, that you and I have certainty, certainty concerning the things we have been taught and are indeed true and trustworthy. And he wanted to make that point. In James Boyce's commentary on Acts, he states, Luke does not merely give us a history of the early church. He tells us that there is a plan to history. God is unfolding it. That plan does not have to do with the rise and fall of empires. It does not have to do with one race or people being more influential than another. The Bible does not look at history as having to do primarily with individual successes or attainments. The meaning of history is in God's work. God reaching down into the masses of fallen humanity and saving some hell-bent men and women, bringing them into a new fellowship, the church, and beginning, and in the study she even highlighted the word began, beginning to work in them in such a way that glory is brought to Jesus. That is what Luke is writing about as he unfolds these events. Let's step back in time a bit and look at the culture in which Luke penned his book in ancient Rome. If you pause long enough, you can see many parallels to today. As with many cultures, a person's quality of life depended on many ways on their rank within the social structure. Same today. Rich. For wealthy Romans, life was good. They lived in beautiful houses, often on the hills, outside of Rome, away from the noise and smell. They enjoyed an extravagant lifestyle, luxurious furnishings, and surrounded themselves with servants and slaves to cater to their every desire. Many would hold exclusive dinner parties and serve their guests the exotic dishes of the day. The poor. Poorer Romans, however, could only dream of such a life. Sweating it out in the city, they lived in shabby, squalid houses that could collapse or burn at any moment. If times were hard, they might abandon newborn babies on the street, hoping that someone else would take them in as a servant or a slave. Poor in wealth but strong in numbers, they were the Roman mob. 
who relaxed in front of the popular entertainment of the time. At that point in time, it was chariot races or the gladiators. The man was the head of the household, whether rich or poor. Each evening, all men visited the baths. Let me tell you, all classes. This was a very interesting concept. Whether you were poor or you were rich, all went to a uh, men went to these baths to clean and just to sit and chat. It was like a huge Starbucks with a big pole and the metal. And um, their men would mix freely with fellow citizens. It didn't matter your rank. Exercising, washing, chatting. And to citizens of Rome at that time, the baths made them feel superior to the rest of the world. They made them feel Roman. The rituals of the baths were so entrenched in the daily life to many citizens, it was nothing less than a symbol of Rome itself. To Romans, the baths proved that they were cleaner and therefore better than inhabitants of other countries. What a mindset. The citizens of Rome were not the only ones that were nationalistic. The Jews during this time had also become increasingly nationalistic as well. They took great pride in being Roman Jews. It's not that they didn't put up a fight in the doctrination of the culture at that point in the time. They didn't just roll over with this sentiment. Many died and their temples were destroyed from the pressure of the Romans. But as Christians, on the other hand, didn't have that as strong hold of the Roman culture. And studying for today, I came across the unexplainable protection God provided in the beginning of the church. Here's the setting. To look at what the Christian was up, was up against in Roman times seemed insurmountable. Does it not at times seem for us today? Roman citizens were busy making Jews accept the Greek culture and the Roman way of life. But at the same time, God did not allow them to destroy them entirely. Unexplainable. The Christians were not nationalistic, but they were had their stance, which was so anti-Roman culture, as Jesus as the one true king of the world stood in stark contrast to Roman, a worship that tolerated all gods. Furthermore, Christianity only served as an allowed religion because it was viewed as a sect of Judaism. Look how God works. Unexplainable. Is Luke's audience much different than us today? Yes, there are differences, and we have come a long way, but there's just enough similarity of our world and the good old U.S. of A. that makes us pause. In addition to this feeling of superiority across the social landscape, the Romans' religion involved cult worship. Approval from the gods did not pretend, and hence, this is so interesting to me, did not depend on a person's behavior, but on the accurate observance of religious rituals. Hmm, who does that make us think about? The New Covenant. Pharisees come to mind? Each god needed an, in, an image, usually a statue or a relief of stones, either uh, a bronze, an altar or a temple in which to offer prayers. How does this look any different today? The secular world is just as lost 
as the Romans at that time that made their idols. The idols of today might not be statue or a stone, but the mighty dollar, the biggest house, the nicest clothes, or the nicest cars. If you have these, you've made it. Don't look at the behavior in which these idols are sought after. That doesn't matter. What matters is the end goal. Are we much different? How does this look any different today for us as believers? Has our attendance on Sunday or Tuesday or Thursday morning become just a ritual? Is the behavior in which we operate the other days of the week not much different than the secular world? Is it not much different? Now let's return back to the beginning of Acts. And here's the good news, ladies. Here's the good news. All that you have been taught about Jesus is true. Look deep. Pause. Reflect. And you will find it in this book that Luke penned. Jesus did not stop teaching and spending time with the disciples after he died. He had much to explain and he was commissioning them for further work. Let us not rush by the unexplainable. Some of them in that room, in that upper room, at the end of the passage that I read this morning, watched him die. Physically. And now here he is, standing in front of them, physically speaking to them, even doubting Thomas, wanting to stick his fingers in the holes of Jesus' hands. I love this quote in James' voice commentary on Acts. Jesus taught about God, but he did not merely teach. He showed what God was like. Do we, in those times between Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, show what God is like and sometimes even use words if necessary? They came together because the Christ they had known and loved was alive. He had conquered death. Tons to wrap around in their minds and their hearts. Unexplainable. He not only appeared in the room with the disciples and the others, but at other locations as he was shown in the book of John and 1 Corinthians. All, but with all of this, good news comes a bit of a warning in the book of Joel. We find in Joel, in chapter 2, 28 through 29, this. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit in all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days. Good. He prophesied. He knew that it was coming. As it begins in that scripture, as I was reading, it says, and afterwards. So Joel is a very small book in the Bible. It's only three chapters. So I thought, I can do this. Go back. And afterward, what was happening at that point? Joel would speak of this. Joel was a prophet, and he was warning Judah of impending judgment because their sins and urged them to turn back to God. The commentary on the beginning of Joel in the Life Application Bible reads, A single bomb devastates a city, and the world is ushered into nuclear age. A split atom power and force such as never been seen. At a launch site, rockets soar, roar, and a payload is thrust into space. 
discoveries dreamed of for centuries are ours as we begin to explore the edge of the universe. Volcanoes, earthquakes, tidal waves, hurricanes, and tornadoes unleash uncontrollable and unstoppable force. And we can only avoid them and pick up the pieces. Power, strength, might. We stand at awe at the natural and man-made display. But these forces cannot touch the power of the omnipotent God, creator of galaxies, storms, atoms, and natural laws. The sovereign Lord rules all there is and ever will be. How silly to live without him. How foolish to run and hide from him. How ridiculous to disobey him. But we do. Since Eden, we have sought independence from his control as though we were the gods and could just control our destiny. And he has allowed our rebellion. But soon the day of the Lord will come. In John 16, 5, 16, 5 through 11, it states, Jesus teaches about the Holy Spirit here. Now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me. Where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt. Prophecy is written here in Joel. I will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment in regard to sin. Because men do not believe in me in in regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. This is a lot that these disciples and these men and women and these brothers and sisters were hearing. I remember after Jim passed, it took me a while uh, in the grieving process, and there's no formula to it, but it took me such a long time to get to the point where I could experience joy. And to experience it, I felt um, guilty. And I shouldn't be feeling it. And I fought it for a long time until I realized that's not what Jim would want. That's not what my Lord would want. But so we're asking, so as he's speaking to them, he goes, I know you're grieving of the physical when I was here with you, but there is joy, and I'm giving you permission to experience it now. And that's a, lar- that's a really, that's a journey, that's beginning, that's a long leap at times. And I like the next verses in John 16, 12 through 15 as well. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, I love that spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will not speak away, speak what he hears. And he will, he will only speak what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will take from what is mine And make it known to you. The Father. And the Son. And the Holy Spirit. So here we are reading the good news. Reflecting and digesting. On what is being laid out before us. 
And the next lesson unfolds. Agendas. Mm. We see in the book of Matthew that the disciples and their mothers were still seeking a literal kingdom. I get it. I understand that. We as humans are very limited in what we can see in front of us. Why wouldn't they? This was all very new way of thinking and processing. With our own agendas, and which I have learned, and which I'm really good at, self-absorption is exhausting. And it's a place in which we can spin our wheels endlessly and get no traction. I know I can go down a rabbit hole more times than I care to admit. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, does this mean that? Or does it mean this? And the questions usually center right around moi. We have ceased to expect the power of the Holy Spirit to be lived out in a literal and tangible way before our eyes. I prayed for a group uh, recently and talked about as we pray and to um, encourage them and myself as well to pray expectantly. And if we, it's, it's more action in it. There's more involvement in it. There's more, hey, Lord, what do you have next in store? We have failed to understand that we live out our lives um, to, to, to serve as a proof of the kingdom. Monday through Sunday, we, we, us. Christ gives us the power to or overcome self because, ladies, by our own willpower, we will not accomplish it. He helps us to put an end to our selfish ambitions and desires and to serve one another in love. So awesome how Jesus responds to the question about when, where, and how. He answers them, I just have to stop, and I just have to listen and hear. In Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I kept looking, but I couldn't find it. The agenda is not ours. It's always about his. This power that Jesus has given us helps us to drastically shift our focus. But we got to do our part and be listening. What is God's plan for your life? Yikes. So while we wait, Luke tells us to remember again and to trust in the truth of the scriptures. He tells us that Christianity is a historical faith. It's not a philosophy. It's not good thoughts. Historically, it's a faith, and that's why he gave us these factual things that happened. Christ has conquered death. Huge. He's conquered death. And we have received our missionary mandate, each of us, to share that good news with others. Not only geographically, but those in the circle of our influence and our tribe. They were looking for a political kingdom. They were looking for an ethnically restricted kingdom. They were looking for a geographically restricted kingdom. See how we restrict? How, just, just here, just here. 
just take care of us here, Lord. And he goes, oh, I have so much more than just here. The kingdom that Jesus spoke about here was a spiritual kingdom. What is spiritual is what the Holy Spirit does. In the commentary in Acts, he mentions a man by the name of Doug Coe. Doug has since gone to be home with the Lord recently, but I actually knew this gentleman. James Boyce, the author of the commentary that I uh, read, was in a meeting in Washington, D.C., in which numbers of us, um, this group of men, were talking about the impact of Christians upon culture. We were talking about various Christian social service agencies and, and what we should be doing. We mentioned the importance of having Christians involved in government. Present at this meeting was Doug Coe, a man whom God has used in a remarkable way over the years. Coe is so successful in what he does that you almost never hear of him. He works behind the scenes. He knows, knew all members of the Congress, senators, and staff. He meets with them, he met with them, and he prayed with them. It is through his ministry and that of people like him that the Fellowship House was established. Doug Coe was listening to what they were saying. He was not disagreeing, but after a while, when he turned to him and said, Doug, you've been in Washington for a long time. What kind of counsel do you have for us as we try to think along these lines? He said, Once, what you're saying is very important. But I want to leave you with this. Remember that it says in the Bible that the visible things will pass away, but the invisible things are eternal. Last couple of weeks, um, I entertained six young men at my house and two of their mentors. Now, that's not my usual guess. Uh, in my home, more times than not, you will find only women. These young men are part of the fellows that, from Doug Coe's influence that has been impacted. East Coast to the West Coast. These young men are just starting out in their careers and are learning what it is to be a follower of Christ in their jobs, in their community, and in their circle of influence. Only one of these young men were, were actually from the Pacific Northwest. I had the privilege of sharing my testimony and my ministry with, with my husband Jim and I with them that Friday. The reason I share this is hopefully to encourage you that God can use you in quiet ways loud ways, huge movements, or just the opportunity to share your faith in the comfort of your own living room. Let us be the women that influence our culture and whatever is trending school of thought for the day. Let us be the influence, not the other way around. You and I believe in the invisible. We believe in God. Let us not be women that are still looking up for Jesus' return. Let us be about deep, deep prayer. Let's be obedient to his will in all facets of our life.
not just here, but everywhere in the quiet moments. Let our life plan be his life plan for us. Let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks and praise again for these women's faces that they look out on this morning. So many stories, Lord, so much, and yet you know every single story. Lord, as we dig in more into the book of Acts, we want to be women of action. We want to hone in on those gifts that you have given us of who we are and what we are. We want to be in our sweet spot, Lord. But then in those sweet spots, those are good. But when you ask us to step out of those sweet spots of some, Lord, may we be the women that say yes. Lord, I pray that it will be rich conversation in the small groups. And I pray that those rich conversations and those prayer times will then be the platform on which we go out this next week and be missionaries in our circles of influence or tribe, whatever it may be, Lord. Whatever person you bring in our path, may they see Jesus in us. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.